Welcome to Fifth Wall's Fly on the Wall podcast, where we explore the shifts occurring in real estate, technology, and society that are driving our cities towards a more equitable, green, and tech-enabled future. I'm your host, Brendan Wallace. In today's episode, I catch up with Brett White, Executive Chairman and CEO of Cushman & Wakefield, to hear more about how COVID-19 has underscored the imperative of technology adoption in the global real estate industry. Brett also shares details around Cushman and Wakefield's return to work strategy. Enjoy the episode. All right, well, Brett, thank you for joining me. Um, obviously these are really unique times, so um, thrilled to get your perspective on the real estate industry and in particular, just how this COVID-19 crisis changes some of the just the imperatives for technology adoption and how you're thinking about it from Cushman's perspective. Sure. Um, so why don't I just start with kind of a, a question I've been thinking a lot about, which is, you know, for the last three, four years, real estate owners have talked a lot about this need for smarter buildings or kind of tech-enabled buildings that have the ability to just understand how occupants are using them. And I'm curious to get your view on, do you think the COVID crisis puts an even greater emphasis on that, both in terms of understanding how people are you know, accessing your buildings, but then also the, the kind of public health dynamics around that. How do you think that impacts mainly office owners um, in particular? Yeah, so I, look, I start, I start with a view that I think we can all agree on very quickly that this particular crisis has taken what has been an evolution in prop tech an evolution in the way people work in the built environment that may have taken five, six, seven more years to accomplish, and it's compressed it into four or five weeks. So we've learned more about the way people work remotely, the way our clients, employees work remotely in the last month than I think we would have learned, as I mentioned, in, in years. And so that has manifested itself in a lot of different ways. You know, later on, we can talk about how people are actually going to work going forward. But as pertains to technology in, in, in buildings, particularly an office owner's technology, I think a lot of things are going to be different immediately. Some of those will stay, I think, forever, and others may go away once this particular pandemic has a vaccine that's going to distribute it. So, for instance, it is highly likely that part of the protocol to access an office building in a month and a half or two months will include some sort of temperature check. And it is not complicated, nor is it expensive to take the access panel we swipe our card on and include in that some sort of infrared uh, temperature sensor. And so when you think about how are building owners going to assure tenants in a multi-tenant building that the building's safe, part of that protocol is going to have to involve some sort of health check. Yeah. And so when you think about how that's gonna work long-term, I could see that building access systems could change very, very quickly to accommodate some of these protocols that we didn't need before. And maybe one way to, to think about it, Brendan, is pre-9-11, there was no TSA. There was no body scanning machines in airports. None of those protocols existed. Post-9-11, they were all put in. And now today, they're dial-tone to us. We, we barely 
they're annoyance, but we barely notice them. And I think, I think buildings are going to have to develop their own TSA type protocol to ensure a safe environment for employees. So the, the technology that goes into buildings, the way in which buildings can keep track of people, uh, however they can do that, and the way in which they can use the technology that either exists today or could be efficiently added onto buildings to help with that sort of health tracking, I think are some of the things we'll see pretty quickly. It's interesting, you know, I, I, was, I was actually in Singapore um, in early February. And so, you know, they were much earlier than the US in their exposure to this. And I remember when I was going about my meetings, I would have to actually sign a declaration whenever I entered a building saying I had not been in, into China. And in more than a few of the buildings, I noticed they had facial recognition technology. Mm -hmm. um, and so obviously I was a guest, so it wasn't working for me, but I saw many people just walking through the turnstiles. And so one of the interesting things is this, this, this interplay between privacy, right? So people have real genuine concerns about facial recognition, but also the public health benefits of that data. Uh, if you can imagine, if, if someone came down with symptoms of COVID or tested positive for it, the ability for a real estate owner to help a tenant reverse engineer everyone that they came into contact with to be really profound. Um, and just thinking just about touching less surfaces, you know, without right. control, the fewer surfaces you touch over the course of a day, the safer you are. Right. So I think there's such profound implications for this. Um, well, well, there are, and it's, you know, one of the challenges we're gonna have here in the States and in Western Europe is, we don't have the, our personal freedoms make it more difficult to, to create some of these protocols. So for instance, we just finished moving, if you can imagine this, almost a million people back into office buildings in greater China where we manage 800 million square feet of buildings. So a million people, we've now moved from home, our, our, our customers back into these buildings and the protocols that were developed in that 800 million square feet are rigid and they work but some of them could be challenged here. So for example, what, what do we do in an office building in Midtown if someone comes to the building, one of the tenants employees comes to the building and refuses to have their temperature checked? Do we actually have a legal right to say they can't have access to the building? Do we actually have a legal right to every single day register that employee, register that they filled out the health form and that they got their temperature checked? I don't know the answer to those questions, but I can see that we're going to have, we are going to have challenges here because for us, the easy solution for us helping put America back to work and Europe back to work was to take that 200 page playbook that we just developed in China, translate it and hand it to every one of our owners and every one of our tenants and say, this is it. It's, it's already done. It's been battle tested. Challenges. There are elements of those protocols that, we are not sure we are actually allowed to implement. So right. it's interesting, you know, I, I, as you've been, as I've been kind of studying how different states, different cities have reacted to this crisis. And obviously the stay at home orders vary quite a bit. And what the federal government is saying something different. And you can almost push that down to a very granular level of individual assets. So there are stores that have refused to close, even though the landlords have said you need to close the assets. And the local jurisdictions have said all retail needs to be closed or all buildings need to be closed. And so it's interesting. It almost kind of, it, it, it pushes a responsibility on real estate owners to have a public health point of view 
and kind of accept a certain responsibility that I think they never had to really contemplate before. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out, uh, both internationally in places like China, but obviously in the U.S. and between kind of red states and blue states and, you know, the, the over kind of the, the, the layers of personal freedom that come on top of that. Well, you, you can see these you can see these two dynamics that that are in contrast or or in opposition to one another. On the one hand, if if you and I think about what would make an office building, a multi-tenant office building, well, for that matter, an apartment project most attractive to us as a tenant, what would make it most attractive to us from a public health safety standpoint are the most rigid possible rules, like right? So total apartment command and control from the right. From the you know, surveillance, everything, right? To say, I, I can tell you as a tenant, Brendan, that if you're going to be a tenant in my office building, we do a hundred things to make sure no one comes in here sick. That, but that is in direct opposition to the whole concept of personal freedom. Um, and, and I think in the U.S., we're going to have the additional challenge, which is, I wish the federal government would take our playbook or somebody's playbook and say, this is, this is the program. This is what all office buildings, all retail centers, all restaurants have to do. They're not going to do that. So what's going to end up happening is you're going to have jurisdictional differences between what proper protocol is. To your point, whether it's red state, blue state, or what, whatever it may be, I'm afraid that we're going to end up with different protocols in different states, counties, and cities. Already California, you know, has, as you know, has very different protocols around what tenants can and can't do on rent forbearance as compared to other states. And this is going to be challenging. And that's going to be even harder, I imagine, for tenants that have these footprints in many different cities, many different states, many different countries, right, to protect the health of their employees. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I'm curious if switching gears a little bit, but on a related topic, obviously, you know, you and I are both working from home and, you know, a large part of the whole U.S. is. And to some extent, I've... I've been surprised at the ease with which my company has transitioned to a kind of work remote environment. Um, I'd say initially there was some loss in productivity, but I've been just shocked by, by how efficiently we're working. And I, I imagine many other CEOs are as well. And so before the COVID-19 crisis, there already was you know, this kind of these themes and these trends within the real estate community that actually large companies might be changing the footprints and the formats of their offices. They want more flexible office space. They want people to be able to work from multiple different offices. And like broadly, I think of that as like flex office, right? People often kind of conflate like co-working with flex office as the trend, but flex office is, is kind of a, a juggernaut of a trend that's impacting office. To what extent do you think COVID will accelerate the demand for flex office space in the US? Well, I think, before I answer the question on flex office, I, I would start by saying this, which is every large employer, well, every small employer right now is experiencing what it means to have a mandated remote workforce, right? So the way I think about that is this is binary. It wasn't, hey, we're going to experiment with this group over here. It's everybody now is working remotely. And I think that 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 has that has taught us very quickly that productivity remote may not be that different than productivity in the office we had a we do an exco call every morning with my my executive team 
we have guest speakers come in every day. You, you are our first speaker, Brennan. Thank you for that. Um, we've had a couple Fortune 500 CEOs on the last couple of days. One today employs 200,000 people around the world in 100% of it's in office space. Big company. And he made a few comments that were interesting. He said, first of all, they can track productivity because they bill by the hour. So it's an engineering firm. So he said, we can, we can actually track productivity daily by the billing that gets done to put into their system. And he said, our productivity decline across the portfolio is 80 bips. It's less than 1% with our workforce uh, being remote. And he said, so what we're concluding is it'll be a slow evolution because of the nature of the length of our leases, but we think we can have a component of our workforce never come back that they're happier, better quality of life at home. The average commute's an hour either way in the in major cities in the US, that's for everybody, an hour either way. So he said, we, we think some of this may never come back. As it pertains to co-working, so co-working, co-working has been now faced with the extreme uh, downside that we all talked about and thought about as say WeWork was, was building, which is what happens when companies want to shed space? Do they shed the co-working first or do they shed it last? Adam's view was always they shed it last. I think most of our view was they shed it first. So we're gonna see this play out a bit, but this particular pandemic has created a challenge for co-work that none of us contemplated, which is the whole idea of rubbing shoulders and being close to other workers is now verboten. Right. Yep. The, the new protocol is the six foot work environment. And so I think what's going to happen, Brendan, is very, very shortly, large occupiers are going to go into these offices before their people come back. They're going to rearrange desks. They're going to rearrange things to make sure that those social distancing separations are in place when their people go back to work. And I think that for co-working, this is, an, this is a particular challenge because those spaces generally are not conducive to that. The right. long bench with, with the seats on it, the couches, and this just doesn't really work well in this particular point in time. I, so I think for co-working, that's the immediate issue, which is, does the space spatially work? The second issue is, I think for co-working is, how many of their tenants are small businesses that won't be able to survive this pandemic or are so stressed that they decide to go back and work at home and not pay rent. We don't know the answers to those questions yet. Now, the other, the other side of the coin for co-working is that, I'll give you an example. The CEO we were talking to today with the 200,000 employees, he said, look, co-working may be an opportunity for us because it's, we think of it as flex surge space, right? If I've got 10,000 employees that are working from home that are engineers, but I need to get them on a project somewhere for a year, that may be our best option so long as that co-working provider can lay the space out that meets our new specifications for six-foot distancing. Yeah, and, and I'm, I mean, there's almost like two questions that are afoot for the, for the, the co-working industry. The, the first is just, do the existing operators survive? Right. Because right. I think, you know, any economic historian knows like when you have this mismatch in the duration of your assets and your liabilities, all it takes is something like this to 
precipitate a, a kind of very quick unwinding of that business. And to some extent, that might almost throw the baby out with the bathwater that a lot of the operators might themselves contract, but it might distract people from really understanding the trends. Because I agree with you, there's almost this demand for truly flex space, like, like flexible space that a company can use that is a company's um, almost property, right? Is that it is their space. And that's oftentimes conflated with co-working, this idea of, you know, rubbing shoulders with lots of startups right. in this really dense environment where you're all sharing beer and coffee. And I think some of the trends might, might be missed, but I'd be really curious to, to hear the conclusion on what do companies cut first? Um, because I, I think probably no one knows the answer. It's too early at this point. I, I think it's, look, it, it would, I would be very surprised if large companies who took some co-work space the last three years, I'd be very surprised with those companies who are going to reduce footprint, I would be very surprised if it wasn't the co-working component for simply for the obvious reasons, which is it's the only lease they have that they can cut because it has a shorter duration, right? Right. right. You know, IBM isn't going to walk away from a lease with Heinz. Yeah. But if they have a 12-month lease in a WeWork building and they need to cut footprint, I think it's almost certain that's where they go. Yeah. And, and, and I imagine a lot of landlords now are looking at some of the operators that are in their buildings and say, do I want to take this over? Do I want to be in the business of managing this space and marketing right. all of these SMB tenants that I never used to have to market for? Do I really want to be in the business of buying coffee, buying beer right. for tenants? Um, so it'll be interesting to see that reaction. Um, you know, there's an interesting question in that, which is, I, I don't know the answer to something I thought about a few days ago was, if I'm an owner of an office building, let's use Heinz as our example, and let's imagine that one of the co-working operators is in my building, and that co-working operator comes to me and says, I don't want to pay rent for six months, um, but I'll stay here. And that owner has to make a decision. Is it better to work with this operator bird in the hand, or is it better to let them go? One of the things that's interesting to me is, I'm not sure what happens if the operator goes away. Does that building owner actually inherit a footprint, a, a space that's actually leased out to these tenants that so they then they then operate right without without having to go out and find tenants for it. those tenants I don't think leave just because the operator of the space goes away. Those those tenants are still there. And so one of the things I think the calculus that owners are probably going through is what are what are my options if my co-working operator tenant comes to me and wants to play hardball. I think owners have options. Yeah. I'm curious to get also your view on, you know, one of the things we've talked about is what do you think the long-term effect will be on retail? And I know that there's, there's a lot to unpack there because we could have had this conversation six months ago and to some extent it might be just as valid in a pre or post COVID environment. And it just almost feels like the COVID-19 crisis accelerated many of the trends that were already gestating for a while in the retail industry. But, but before going deep on it, like, what do you think the retail industry looks like, say, 24 months from today? Well, using, using the analogy we started with, which is we've taken what was an evolution in retail that would have taken, I don't know how long it would have taken, but it would be years. We've now compressed that to a month. And so 
as this tide goes out, I think the first thing that we can, we can agree on is there were a number of legacy retailers that were on, to use a, a very poor analogy, life support. And this pandemic has turned off that life support. So those firms that were already struggling mightily to figure out what their new model was going to be may, have, may now be in a situation where that period of time they had to figure that out is now gone. And so I suspect the first thing we're going to see is some very large legacy retailers go away and more quickly than they might have without this pandemic. I think that we will also see in retail retailers that had developed new concepts and concepts that were successful being even more successful. There's, there's this, it's the tide went out and the strong survive and the weak, the weak go away. And that's nowhere is that more true than retail. The thing about retail, you always have to keep, keep in mind, and you know this, is there is no vertical in commercial real estate that is more creative, that is more adaptive, that can change more quickly than retail because that is their business. They're constantly having to change to different consumer tastes and buying patterns. Now, that, now they're having to change for this new event, which is how do we, how do we have an environment in our, in our bricks and mortar stores that is safe for a customer to visit and can, and, and can thrive in an environment like this. And so I don't know what those models are, but I know that those are the retailers that are going to win here. And, it, you know, Brendan, you mentioned this the other day. Look, 85% of consumer goods in the U.S. were still bought bricks and mortar. 15% were e-commerce. E-commerce is certainly going to, those numbers are going to jump uh, in 2020. People, not only because they had to buy e-commerce the last six weeks, four weeks, but because many, many people who had not done it before or had done little of it have found the channels available in e-commerce were much broad, much more broad than they thought they were, much more choice than they thought they had, and easier to use than they thought. So, look, retail, the way I think about retail is this is, this is the turning off of the live support the big moves I think we're going to see this year are these very large, a few very large legacy retailers go away. And and how do you think about just you know from a from from your business's standpoint is if you think about the large kind of the, the scale retailers disappearing. What what's so scary about retail is how systemic the the problem could be because you know foot traffic from consumers translates into sales that basically translates into income for the retailers, a percent of which they ultimately pay landlords. But if suddenly some of those things start evaporating, the foot traffic, the tenant themselves, you fire these co-tenancy clauses that are in a lot of these retail leases and foot traffic clauses, and a lot of otherwise viable retail assets could be like vacated very fast. It's almost right. like, as I think about it, it's, it's like a sudden surge is the big problem. It's almost like a flattening of the curve you want to affect for these large retailers. So you're right that I think many of the retailers we, we know today, the kind of old established brands, they were on life support, but at the same time, we don't want them to die artificially fast or kind of unnatural deaths. So like the fear is that you kill the otherwise viable retailers because everything becomes so systemic instantly. And once it becomes systemic, the capital markets freeze up, at the same time sentiment shifts, and you also have the issue of all the all the 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 debt holders, right? The the mortgages on a lot of these assets right. are dependent on that. So when, when, when you, we look at retail, you know, in the in the olden days, so maybe more than ten years ago, 
the, the concept for big retail was I'm going to seed my center, anchor my center with a couple different types of retailers to create the foot traffic to feed theaters. And those were theaters and big box retail, the Robinsons, the May Company, the Sears, the Nordstrom. Those, those two operators, the theater and those big boxes brought the foot traffic that fed the, the retailers you're talking about, the up and coming exciting new retailers that took 1,200 square feet instead of 100,000 square feet. So if you extrapolate that out to today, one of, one of the things that I think is getting pretty obvious is those, those retail centers that today were built and are successful because, and, and they don't rely on big box retailers or theaters for the foot traffic. They have an experiential uh, value add. You know, we want to go walk around that center because it's fun to walk around that center. Those were me, seem to me to be clear winners. And those centers that are anchored by the big boxes and perhaps theaters, riskier. Yeah, and, and I've heard obviously of a lot of retail landlords building these, these precincts for digitally native brands. And like you said, the, the dynamic had kind of shifted where it used to be at the, you know, the big boxes grew the foot traffic and then you right. know, the inline retailers kind of captured that. But to some extent, I don't want to mention any specific names. I don't think a lot of people want to visit the big box retailers anymore, especially nowadays. But at the same time, I think the way some of these brands have built their stores to be really experiential and immersive in the brand, basically getting things you can't get online. Um, right. I could see that still attracting um, certainly the, the, the younger demographic that, that has come to know those brands. Yeah. Um, I and, and do you think it changes almost the footprint then of certain retail assets? Do you think a lot of these big boxes just altogether go away and are they repurposed into other use cases? I mean, we've talked a lot about is co-working, right? Or is Flex Office a great use case for a big box in, in, a, in a retail mall? What do you think? Do you think the form factor changes? It's, yes. I, I think that the, the days of, a large retail center being successful because everyone is going there to shop at this one big box and then they would walk by the other, you know, that was a layout scheme, right? Was the parking's over here, the big box is over here and you got to walk across to all the little retailers to get there or the theater. I do think that it's in today's, in today's retail environment, those big box retailers have much less of, of, of value add or, said differently, are much less attractive to the consumer. The reason they're getting out of the house isn't to go to those retailers. So, so for those retailers, the work they have ahead of them is just multiples of what the small retailers have ahead of them, which is how do they repurpose or reformat their, their retail environment so that people, again, see what they have as a destination. And you know, there are examples of this when many of the big retailers are now they look a lot like Fred Siegel used right. to look 20 years ago, which Fred Siegel was a collection of little boutiques you know, under one roof. And I think the big retailers, a lot of them have been moving that way, which is they're a collection of little brand shops. And so that gets interesting. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I think it does change the footprint for retail. And I think that, you know, what we're seeing these days is the most successful retailers um, now are not taking 100,000 square feet. They're taking 5,000 feet or 4,000 feet. Yeah. And how do you, Brett, how do you think the, this crisis and kind of its immediate aftermath, how do you think it changes brokerage, right? The business of real estate brokerage. I mean, I read a lot about 
virtual viewings are kind of on the rise. And what, what's hard to figure out is, is that just a temporary thing? That's just kind of a constraint we have today or long-term is that really how we think people will understand space? And I'm curious, obviously the differences between residential and commercial, right? Um, just because the, 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 the sizes of the commitments are so different. So like, what do you think brokerage looks like um, a year from now? So again, what, what has happened for this last four weeks is that the entire commercial brokerage business has been done remotely. So this, this was a situation, this is a situation where the dinosaurs have been forced to do what they said they would never do, right? They said they would never do a virtual showing. They would never do a Zoom call. They would never use CRM or all the applications we built for them to use. They now have been faced with a dilemma, which is either use those things or go broke. And right. so they're using those things. Brokers are, brokers are very facile. They're very smart. They, they know how to go to where the action is. And I think what this period of time has shown the brokerage community is you can get an awful lot done more than you thought you could get done remotely. And so to your point, virtual showings, there's no other way to do building inspections right now. Right. People are, you know, they're doing things with zoom and FaceTime and, and, and for us salt mine and these applications that they never would have tried before because they have to, and because they have to, they're able to try it with permission. In other words, the client doesn't, can't say to them, I don't want to do it that way. Drive and meet me there. Right. It's the only way to get it done. So my guess is that what, what brokers are finding, just like other employees and other disciplines are finding is these applications that companies invested in actually work really well. And they, they do fill the purpose. It is okay to do a virtual showing. It is okay to, uh, use DocuSign for every single document now. And this has been a forced adoption, but it's an adoption nonetheless. And I think that some of these things are going to stick. I, I don't know which, I don't know how, but I think that we're going to find, in our firm at least, uh, we believe that the adoption of all the technologies that we've built for our brokers over the last five years, the adoption has been very slow going into the pandemic. It's very fast right now. And I think these are, many of these are going to stick. So the brokerage business is going to be a much more virtual business. Yeah. And, and just thinking that, that that's true of so many industries. That's true in brokerage. But the, the, the tailwinds this has put behind technology adoption and kind of SaaS services that are absolutely core, that are existential to a, a business like yours is probably wow. made. You probably achieved what would have happened over the course of five or 10 years in 60 days. Um, well, we, we, would have been, we would have been begging our sales force every day, you've seen it firsthand, every single day to use these technologies. We, we, we bought them, built them, and installed them. Right. And they were gathering dust. And we've been begging our employees to do it. Now, they're begging us to, to remind them, how, how do I do that again? How does this application work? Right. But the good news about it is, as I said, you know, brokers are, are you know, it's a tough business they're in. And, and they're, they're smart, and they're, they're agile. And so, you bring that horse to water, it drinks the water and it loves the water and it will keep drinking the water. Right. So this, you know, our, Adam, our, our CIO, who you know well, Adam Stanley and I were chatting with this the other day, we've accomplished in four weeks adoption we could not have done in four years. Wow, that's really amazing. 
Um, well, Brett, uh, thank you so much for uh, for joining me. You know, this is obviously a really unique time to be connecting, but it's good to connect virtually. Um, so thanks again. Yeah, absolutely, bro. Thank you very much. Thanks, Brett. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Fly on the Wall. All of these episodes and more are available on our YouTube channel. To learn more about Fifth Wall, visit our website at www.fifthwall.com. This podcast is presented for informational purposes only, is not intended to recommend any investment, and is not an offer to sell or the solicitation of an offer to purchase an interest in any current or future investment vehicle managed or sponsored by Fifth Wall Ventures Management LLC or its affiliates. Collectively, Fifth Wall, any such investment vehicle, a fund. Any such solicitation of an offer to purchase an interest will be made by a definitive private placement memorandum or other offering document. Forward-looking statements and opinions as to real estate markets or any other matters as expressed in this presentation are those of the individual presenters, but are not necessarily the views of Fifth Wall as a firm, and cannot constitute a guarantee of future success or profitable results. As a result, investors should not rely on such forward-looking statements and or opinions, or on anything else contained in this podcast in making their investment decisions. Moreover, certain information contained herein may have been obtained from published and non-published sources, prepared by other parties, and may not have been updated through the date hereof. While such information is believed to be reliable for the purposes for which it is used herein, Fifth Wall does not assume any responsibility for the accuracy or completeness of such information, and such information has not been independently verified by Fifth Wall. This presentation speaks as of its publication date, and Fifth Wall undertakes no obligation to update any of the information herein. In addition, to the extent that any prior performance information is contained in this podcast presentation, prospective investors should bear in mind that past results are not necessarily indicative of future results, and there can be no assurance that any fund will achieve results comparable to those of any prior or existing fund or portfolio investment of Fifth Wall. None of the information contained herein has been filed with the United States Securities and Exchange Commission, any securities administrator under any state securities laws, or any other domestic or foreign governmental or self-regulatory authority. No such governmental or self-regulatory authority has passed or will pass on the merits of the offering of interests in any fund, or the adequacy of the information contained herein. Any representation to the contrary is unlawful. This communication is intended only for persons resident in jurisdictions where the distribution or availability of this communication would not be contrary to applicable laws or regulations. Any products mentioned in this podcast may not be eligible for sale in some states or countries. Prospective investors should inform themselves as to the legal requirements and tax consequences of an investment in a fund within the countries of their citizenship, residence, domicile, and place of business. Investors should consult their own financial, tax, legal, and other advisors in connection with any proposed investment and should carefully review all disclosures and descriptions of risk factors that are contained in relevant offering materials.